This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I'd like to start out by noting that our favorite congressman, John Doolittle, from California's 4th Congressional District, has been in the news again. In a recent write-up in the Sacramento News and Review, Norman Ornstein, scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, was quoted saying, The notion that you will profit personally from your fundraising by taking 15% off the top, the theory was that was for Julie Doolittle's efforts to raise the money, but it was 15% for virtually everything that was raised, whether she had anything to do with it or not, that obviously is just not an appropriate set of behaviors. As you will no doubt recall from our previous conversations on this topic, uh, John Doolittle's wife, Julie, set up a fundraising firm, Sierra Dominion Financial Solutions, and located it in their Virginia home. They had clients associated with Jack Abramoff, and uh, Julie apparently took 15% commissions from contributions to Doolittle's campaign and political action committee. Virginia records show Julie as the company's only officer and director, and she's the only known employee. Noted the Sacramento News and Review, it is unknown what, if any work, she actually did. John Doolittle won in a squeaker last November, and the man he narrowly defeated, we're happy to say, is going to join us in our second segment today. Retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Brown has recently reformed his campaign committee to see if enough support exists to warrant another candidacy for the 4th Congressional District. Please stay tuned for our talk with Charlie Brown in segment two. Let us start the program now as we like to do with On This Date in History. On today's date, which is March 29th, in 1461, Lancastrians lose the Battle of Towton in the War of the Roses, and Edward IV secured the English throne. The battle was the bloodiest ever fought on English soil, with a death toll estimated to be as high as 38,000. On March 29th, 1885, in his Atlanta, Georgia backyard, Dr. John Pemberton brewed up the first batch of his, quote, brain tonic and intellectual beverage, unquote, the cocaine-containing Coca-Cola. And while the cocaine was later replaced with caffeine, Coke to this day uses decocainized coca leaf as one of its natural flavorings, a fact which the Coca-Cola company takes great pains to to, uh, avoid disclosure of. And finally, on March 29, 1919, observations of stars during a total solar eclipse showed that gravity can bend light rays, supporting a key element of German physicist Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. Our statistic of the day, actually we have a couple of them today. The first uh, dovetails with our previous citing of the fact that apparently not only do 22% of Americans think George Bush is doing a good job, 22% also wanted more coverage of the Anna Nicole Smith affair. So let's return to this stats uh, from a a Harris poll of January of last year, which noted that at that point, 41% of Americans still believed Saddam Hussein had strong links to al-Qaeda. 24% believes several of the hijackers in the attacks were Iraqis. Of course, none were. And 22% of Americans still believed Saddam Hussein helped plan and support the September 11th terrorist attacks. So, 22% 
see Saddam and 9-11 linked. 22% think Bush is doing a good job. And 22% want more Anna Nicole Smith coverage. Coincidence? You be the judge. And statistic part two. The percentage of Americans who think that Bush should pardon Lewis Scooter Libby? Well, it's not 22% this time. It's just 18%. There may be some progress here. And for the record, 69% of Americans say President Bush should not issue such a pardon. We have three quotes of the day for today. The first comes from Gore Vidal, which is sort of apropos to our statistical discussion. Gore Vidal said recently, Half of the American people have never read a newspaper. Half never voted for president. One hopes it's the same half. Quote two, also from presidential politics, John Edwards said this week, quote, The campaign goes on strongly. From our perspective, other than sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves, there was no reason to stop. That was former Senator Edwards noting that uh, the fact that his wife Elizabeth has incurable cancer is in no way going to uh, curtail his presidential ambitions. What a guy, huh? Just because your wife has incurable cancer, that's no reason to stop your political aspirations. Sorry. Never liked Senator Edwards too much, and that quote didn't do anything to uh, endear him to me. But far and away, my favorite quote of the week comes from former Arizona Governor Fife Symington, described by the Associated Press as currently a pastry chef and business consultant. Describing a UFO sighting known as the Phoenix Lights, Symington, a former Air Force captain who was then in his second term as governor, witnessed this and told a UFO investigator recently that, quote, the craft he saw was enormous. It was just otherworldly. In your gut, you could just tell it was otherworldly. Symington was described by a friend as a Trekkie who enjoys discussing space travel. In response to the former governor's remarks, Tucson astronomer and retired Air Force pilot James Magaha said he investigated the two sightings over Phoenix and said it was clearly aircraft in formation flying at different times, then dropping flares. McGahan said of Symington, he's not a trained observer, and what he feels in his gut doesn't make any difference. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this week was a good week for silver foxes after a brothel in Germany announced a 50% discount to senior citizens. All clients need to do is show us some proof of age, said a spokesman, adding that the discount only applies during afternoon hours. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Utah, when state officials, it was revealed, have ordered motorist Glenn Urich to remove the vanity license plate Merlot from his car after officials discovered that Merlot is a type of wine. Utah state law prohibits the name of intoxicants on license plates. But Yurik, who's had the plate for 10 years, said most people in the largely Mormon state were puzzled, not offended by it. People usually ask us what the word means, he said. And speaking of Mormons, it was an ugly week for Mitt 
Romney last week after the presidential candidate alienated an audience of Cuban Americans in Miami by quoting in stumbling Spanish the slogans Patria o Muerte and Venceremos, which means fatherland or death and we shall overcome. Romney apparently didn't realize that these communist slogans have been used for decades by Fidel Castro to salute Cuba's revolution. And no, we are unable to confirm whether Mitt Romney knows what Merlot is. And we almost forgot our quip of the day. Uh, This comes from Will Durst, who said in last month's Comic Press News that the most important man in Washington for the seventh year running was Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens' doctor. And uh, Radio Parallax agrees with Mr. Durst that uh, whatever doctor is keeping John Paul Stevens in good health and away from the appointment process of the Bush administration is indeed a very important man. All right, another news in bad leadership. Uh, this week, the United Nations Security Council unanimously okayed tougher nuclear sanctions against the government of Iran. The resolution passed 15 to 0. And we're hoping that the end may be near for Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe. Political leaders in Africa have now convened to discuss the problem of Robert Mugabe, who last month beat up some Democratic activists who were demonstrating, including his main political rival, Morgan Svingerai, the opposition leader who apparently suffered a cracked skull in police custody. We're going to try to bring someone on next week's show to talk about what's going on in Zimbabwe, and uh, we'll, we'll see if we can't, uh, can't hold off that discussion till next week. We're sorry to note that we were unable to attend uh, the Bob Wilkins tribute, which took place on Monday night. Bob Wilkins was the longtime Northern California host of TV's Creature Features. Mr. Wilkins is now suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and he was honored with a fundraiser hosted by Mr. Lobo of Cinema Insomnia. The tribute apparently featured a screening of Horror of Beach Party and some clips of Bob Wilkins in action. If you attended this event, please uh, let us know how that went with, a, with an email to info at radioparallax.com. I've never seen Horror of Beach Party, and I would have liked to have done so. It is listed prominently in the 50 worst films of all time. The uh, screamingly funny collection by Harry Medved and Randy Dreyfus, which uh, dates back to 1978, is something we think, uh, you know, just about every one of you out there listening probably should read. It is hilarious. So you probably want to check your local used bookstore for that one. I do remember from the description of Horror of Beach Party that it featured... uh, Dick Dale and the Deltones, whom I think were basically a garage band at that point that, uh, that knew the film director. Dick Dale went on to a distinguished uh, career as a guitarist, and in fact, we often use his version of Pipeline on this program for its, uh, its mood-setting uh, capabilities. Anyway, if you attended this event for Bob Wilkins at the Crest Theater Monday, please let us know how that went. And in media news, you may have noticed last month, Al Franken is giving up his talk radio uh, hosting job to run for a U.S. Senate seat in Minnesota in 2008. 
Apparently, uh, several Minnesota Democrats uh, told the Minneapolis Star Tribune that the uh, that Franken, a, a former Radio Parallax guest, uh, called them to let him know his intentions. On February 16th, a New York real estate developer announced that he was buying the struggling Air America network. Now, we do note that Radio Parallax uh, does bear quite a few similarities to Al Franken's radio program, except that we often talk about things other than politics, and once in a while at least, we are funny. Ooh, ow, sorry, Al. But I did buy one of your uh, CDs and found that it had exactly one laugh in it, which wasn't very good for 40 minutes of recording. And from the uh, Sacramento Bee's 21Q media blog by Sam McManus, we have the following. In July 2005, six Northern California radio listeners challenged the license renewal for popular talk stations KFBK, 15.30 a.m., and KSTE, 6.50 a.m., on the grounds of political bias. The six charged that the Clear Channel Station's primetime talk show programming amounts to the use of the airwaves as a relentless political pulpit, presenting only one-sided, predictable opinion by, on most issues and even blatantly endorsing one political party. Is airing conservative pundits such as Rush Limbaugh and Tom Sullivan, KFBK, and Armstrong and Getty, Michael Savage, and Bill O'Reilly, KSTE, enough to revoke the station's licenses? Hardly. The FCC denied the challenge and renewed the station's licenses. In a letter to the six objectors, the FCC wrote, quote, We find that each station has served the public interest, convenience, and necessity during the subject license term. There have been no serious violations of the Act or the Commission's rules at either station. We feel pretty confident at this point that the fact that we bag on both parties is going to keep us uh, in good standing with the FCC. And they presumably won't get too upset with us if we fail to bring someone on from Congressman John Doolittle's office as a rebuttal to Charlie Brown in the next segment. Uh, But uh, I guess we'll see, won't we? But I will say for the FCC and everyone else's benefit right now, if Julie Doolittle wants to come on this program and explain how it is she takes 15% off the top for hubby, and this is within ethical bounds, well, you know, we'll we'll give her all the airtime she wants. Anyway, speaking of radio, we'd like to note at this point that uh, you can hear this program any of six different ways. Via your radio, tuned to KDVS 90.3 FM, that's throughout much of Northern California and even sometimes Nevada. On the internet, either via the station's website, kdvs.org, or this program's website, radioparallax.com. A fourth way to hear us is our rebroadcast twice a week on KDRT 1015 FM here in Davis. A fifth method is through Access Sacramento Radio. And curiously, a sixth way we are heard is via WECI 91.5 FM in Richmond, Indiana. We go now to Alice Edgerton, Program Director for WECI. We thought this was kind of a cool story that you, you found your way to us and, and asked if we could rebroadcast, and we're doing it. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys uh, being able to syndicate to us, and people out here seem to really be enjoying the program, so thank you. So you just kind of scrolled through the web and, and stumbled on us, or how did it happen? Well, basically I was just looking for programs that um, we could play here, and I wanted just sort of like a general talk show that had interesting topics. And um, I looked at some stations that I had, had liked, and I noticed that some of them were broadcasting your show. So I was like, oh, well, we should do that. Well, excellent. 
Well, I guess you're serving as a good role model for others out there who may be listening on the web who might want to hear us locally. And, and I guess with the technology, you can do it just by basically uh, pulling it off of the web. Yeah, it's been really easy for us. What's the weather like out in Indiana? Oh, it's about 80 degrees right now. It's, it's pretty gorgeous. You're kidding. Nice because we've had a kind of a terrible winter. I guess you guys are pretty lucky with that out there. Well, it's been, it's been unseasonably warm out here, but I'm, I'm shocked to hear that you guys are even warmer than we are. How warm is it out there? I don't know. It's in the 70s today. Too bad for you. <laughs> Alice, tell us a little bit about your college. Okay, well, we're um, a very small liberal arts college, 1,200 people, and we're a Quaker college, so we're in the Quaker tradition. You can check out our website at www.earlham.edu. We basically don't play sports very well and <laughs> are interested in science. We have a pretty good biology program. Good. And we're sort of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I guess if we're if someone were to go to Richmond, you have to go between Indianapolis and Dayton, Ohio. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, we're right on the border between Ohio and Indiana, pretty much in the middle. Well, we'll try and introduce, uh, since we know people are going to be listening locally in eastern Indiana, we'll see what we can do to, uh, to, to get some Indiana stories for you guys. Great, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, well, Alice, appreciate it very much. Glad that you were being heard out there, and uh, we're thrilled. Great, thank you so much, too. All right, hope you'll start a uh, snowball effect across the country. We'll get in other little <laughs> college stations. Excellent, I hope so, too. All right, and speaking of uh, KDRT, KDIRT, as we were doing just a minute ago, uh, there's some issues going on over there, and to inform us about what those are, we'll go now to station director Jeff Shaw. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, uh, KDRT-LP is uh, under threat of encroachment, is what the term is called, by a radio station called KMJE, a commercial station that is moving from Gridley to Woodland, or actually more like three kilometers away from where we're currently transmitting from. Oh, my. So what will happen is uh, they have primary status and we have secondary status, um, even though we're a community-run radio station, so that means that they will effectively seize our operations uh uh, seize our signal, at least. And so we have some recourse, but, um, you know, the rules are sort of against us on this one. So what what can be done? Um, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, rally everyone to try to, to send letters of objection to try to at least slow down the process. What happened with the process is, is that for a full-power station to move their community of license used to be a two- to three-year process, and on January 19th, the FCC... Um, put in effect rules that make it simply a minor modification on someone's uh, application. So, in effect, they changed it from a two- to three-year process to a 60-day process. So while we always knew that we would be under threat of encroachment or possibility of encroachment, what happened is that it went from a two- to three-year process where we would have time to uh, sort of work out a compromise to a 60-day process where we have very little time whatsoever to, to deal with it. So we're asking people to go... We're channeling all of the information through our website at kdrt.org, and that has instructions on how people can help out. Well, I'm pretty confident a lot of our listeners uh, here for KDVS also enjoy uh, what you're doing over there at KDIRT, and I'm sure they'll, they'll pitch in. I hope so. There'll be some public meetings on this as well? Yes, there'll be one today at uh, 6 p.m., and there'll be another one on Sunday, April 1st at 6 p.m., and uh, other meetings will be announced through our website. All right, and where, where can people go at 6 o'clock today? They can go to 1623 Fifth Street in Davis or the radio station, which is at that location at the studio. You can get the directions from our website, I would suggest, or call 757-2419. Well, very good. I hope that people will be mobilized and do what we can to, to help you in this. And please come on in the, in the next week or two as needed and keep us informed of how things are going. We will do. Thanks, Douglas. 
That was Jeff Shaw, station director at KDRT, KDIRT, right here in Davis. All right, final item for uh, segment A today, which I guess is sort of focused in on media issues, uh, comes the following from the media, comma, miscellaneous file. According to the Associated Press, the man who once sang as the police officer in The Village People was arrested again last week. Victor Macho Man Willis, 55, was taken into custody early Friday morning in University City. A woman who described herself as Willis's girlfriend told police she had been choked and threatened with a knife. While we're sorry to hear about this unfortunate incident, what we find shocking about it is the fact that Victor Macho Man Willis of the Village People reportedly has a girlfriend. take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll be back in a moment with retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Brown. Joining us now in the program is retired Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Brown, who we meant to have on this program last October as the race heated up in the 4th Congressional District between Charlie Brown and Congressman John Doolittle. Unfortunately, we failed in our effort, but we have him here today. We're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Charlie Brown. Uh, thank you for having me on, Doug. I hope this will be the first of many interviews. Well, I, I hope the same thing. Our signal uh, comes in pretty loud and clear up in the 4th Congressional District, so, so we know we'll be reaching uh, prospective voters. Well, there's a lot of folks out here that just are eager for the news to get an idea of what's really going on in the world, and there is so much going on now, both locally, nationally, internationally. It's directly affecting all of us because of the impact on our budgets, on our children. Everything about our lives is being impacted by things. Colonel Brown, we should probably let people know that you are running. 2008 campaign is uh, is being talked about on the national level, but we should note that it's actually started already for the 4th District. Well, we have not uh, officially made a decision yet. We <laughs> okay. have the we have the website up and running, charliebrownforcongress.org. We are soliciting volunteers, of course, the always needed money. And mostly we're looking to see if there is enough interest out there to keep this going. We don't think that uh, it's wonderful that we took Congress back. I believe that a lot of good things are coming out of Congress as the hearings take place. We're finding out uh, 
problems with our troops in Iraq, trouble with the veterans care when they come back, troubles with the Justice Department, but there's still an awful lot to be done, and John Doolittle remains part of the problem. Let's talk a little bit about, about Congressman Doolittle. There was an article in the Sacramento News and Review of late, which I thought might be worth quoting. Uh, they noted from the correspondence in Washington that, uh, well, the way they described it was John Doolittle was the only House member who did not make himself available to be interviewed for this article, but in Washington the question on most minds regarding Doolittle is not why he avoids an interview, but whether he will avoid an indictment. So he's in actually quite a bit of political trouble. He is in a lot of political trouble. Uh, I do not know whether he's going to be indicted or not, but he is very ineffective as a congressman. He was ineffective before, but if you go to the clerk of the House website, and check on what John Doolittle is currently doing in Congress. He has introduced 10 bills in Congress now that he is the author of. He does not have a sponsor, co-sponsor on any of his bills. His own party is staying away from him. They don't like the bills he's proposing, and he can't get anyone in Congress to be a co-sponsor on any of the 10 bills that he has authored. That shows how much everyone in Washington is moving away from him because they know that he is in trouble and a liability. Let's refresh people's mind as why he is in trouble. He's associated with Brent Wilkes and Jack Abramoff, much in the news of late, regarding uh, Randy Duke Cunningham, who was uh, basically taken out of Congress and put in jail. He has been in the middle of all of the scandals in Washington, uh, starting with Tom DeLay, then up to Abramoff, Nay, Foley, Wilkes, uh, anything that has to do with money and money being paid to congressmen for their vote, John Doolittle's name has been mentioned. Well, speaking of money, I, I note here uh, on the website, uh, Colonel Brown, you've been critical of, of John Doolittle's opposition to the emergency rural school funding measure recently. What was that all about? Well, the rural schools in the northern California counties, and this doesn't just affect California, any of the states with uh, a large amount of federal land, forest land, have been receiving money from for logging on their lands. And this goes back to uh, the early 1900s. Uh, six years ago, due to the decrease in logging, the Secure Rural Schools Act was passed that gave the rural schools and road districts a percentage of federal money to keep their school systems going. This act expired. Uh, Nothing was done about it in the last Congress. should have been taken care of last year. It was not. So one of the problems that the 110th Congress, uh, the Democratic Congress, inherited was how to fund the rural schools. Literally, some of the school districts up in Modoc and Lassen counties would, would have gone bankrupt. So they added $400 million into the Iraq War Supplemental Bill as a stopgap measure to fund the rural schools until Congress would have time to actually do a permanent fix to the school districts. John Doolittle did not do anything to get this bill passed while he was part of the Republican leadership in the last Congress, and he voted against it uh, in this Congress. Let's talk also about uh, the, the scandal over at Walter Reed. Um, the Iraq War, of course, is dividing America. Uh, opinions vary, shall we say, as to what, what should be done over there, but I think everybody um, wants to see the people that serve over there taken care of, and the, the, the scandal of the condition of, of, the, of um, the infrastructure and the care over there has really, I think, shocked everybody. Um, what's, what's your reaction to this? Well, the problems with veterans' care have been out there for a long time. 
this was actually the probably the primary issue that pushed me into politics when I had enlisted people who served with me coming to me after retirement asking if I could do something to help them with the veteran system. Now, we get pretty good care out here in the California area, although I have had a number of people call in with some specific complaints uh, about some of the facilities, but Walter Reed is just uh, symptomatic of the problems with the whole system where everybody talks about supporting the troops, but nothing is actually being done once they come back and disappear. You can make a lot of complaints about on active duty, but Walter Reed specifically highlights the veterans who have come back with serious injuries from combat and their paperwork, they are getting wonderful care from the doctors and the nurses who see them, but the bureaucracy that has been created by this administration to hold down budget costs by delaying the settlement of their disability claims by delaying whether they will be kept on active duty or put into the VA system. This is where this group of people, the main problem people hear about with Building 18, if their claims were being handled in a timely manner, they would never have had a reason to be over there waiting for months for their paperwork to be correctly taken care of. This is something that the claims backlog has gotten so much worse, gone up almost a third in the last two years. The care, the VA has not made the effort to get the proper care providers on board, where the VA in the past has been, you know, overburdened with the World War II vets, the Korea vets, the Vietnam vets, and, you know, an older generation. Now you have this younger group with these serious problems from amputations, burns, traumatic brain injuries. The VA was not equipped to deal with this new round of injuries. That's one of the reasons that we are currently, as we raise money for a political campaign, we have pledged to give 10% of the money we collect to the local um, veterans groups here in the district to help offset the shortfall that the federal government is not taking care of. But this is a long-term problem. It has been building for a number of years, but we have seen this administration make the problem worse as they have changed the eligibility rules, as they have made it harder for people that come back with amputations and the traumatic brain injury, the post-traumatic stress injuries, straight back into the VA system from a combat zone, and they're trying to say that these aren't combat-related injuries. This borders on being criminal. It is only through the oversight process. Well, first off, we have the press who went after this story. I think we're shocked to find out what they had and refused to cover it up. And then we finally have a Congress that's holding oversight hearings to get the troop out to the rest of the people. But there is such a need out there that the government is not taking care of to take care of these men and women who kept their promise to defend this country, we are not keeping our promise to take care of them once they come back. Well, Colonel, as a military officer, uh, a Vietnam vet yourself, you served as a rescue helicopter pilot at the end of the war. Your son, I understand, is about to deploy for his fourth rotation in Iraq. Um, final question today, w what do you see happening with the Iraq war in 2007? I would encourage everyone to read 
what General Petraeus is saying about the Iraq War, that a military victory cannot be achieved to settle things in Iraq. The military victory was won when we defeated Saddam's army. General Petraeus is saying that the only way we are going to get any resemblance of peace in Iraq, a stable country, is through political and economic efforts, that that is where the emphasis needs to be now, and yet we do not see this administration making the effort over the last four years of this war for a political or economic solution there. They have concentrated on the military because that's glamorous and it's gotten them headlines, but General Petraeus has publicly stated that it is going to take political involvement of the other countries in the region, and we do not see that happening. We have not seen that happen for the last four years. It is the mistakes of the last four years that got us in the difficulties we are in now, and we have to have an administration that can be considered an honest broker in the region to carry through the political and economic efforts that General Petraeus says are necessary for stability in Iraq that will allow us to get out. Well, Colonel, we're very interested in what will happen in California's 4th Congressional District. We hope that, uh, indeed, this will be the first of many appearances on our program. Well, thank you very much, much Doug. Uh, hard to get everything out in an interview. So, again, I encourage your listeners and you to check out the website, charliebrownforcongress.org, and I would hope at some point in time I can come over, sit down, and we can take phone questions from your listeners. Well, Colonel, we'll see if we can't arrange just that at some future point. And again, appreciate your speaking with us, and good luck here as things unfold. Thank you, Doug. We would note a statistic from, uh, from January of this year, according to Newsweek, of the 535 members of the House and Senate, only about 25 have come under fire in combat. And we're not sure the exact number of members of Congress who have uh, children or family members who are active military facing uh, enemy fire in, in the Middle East. But uh, Colonel Brown served in Vietnam, and his son is going for, back for his fourth tour of duty in Iraq. I think this gives him a perspective that uh, is lacking from a lot of members of Congress. And we, we, again, we wish him well in his efforts in 2008. Speaking of uh, campaign 2008, uh, we note that somehow uh, Rudy Giuliani seems to be bobbing his way to the, uh, the head of the Republican crowd. However, in the recent Republican state convention held in Sacramento a couple months back, we noted that uh, Bill Simon... The man who ran an embarrassingly unsuccessful 2002 California gubernatorial candidacy against Gray Davis uh, went to the convention to try and convince delegates that Giuliani is not too liberal, which doesn't sound like a winning marketing strategy to us. When I saw the headline in the B saying, Bill Simon seeks to sell Giuliani to the right, I figured the mayor's goose is cooked. And speaking of Sacramento politics, we have this item now a few weeks old. Sacramento Mayor Heather Fargo violated California's Political Reform Act when she failed to identify the person who bought her home as required in her economic interest statements. That was according to a state commission. California's Political Reform Act requires certain public officials to report their assets and income so conflicts of interest can be avoided. 
And yes, I'm sure that listeners will be incredulous at the notion that someone running for the city council in Sacramento could have a conflict of interest. But if you drive through Business 80 and take a look to the north at the sprawling development of North Natomas out in what used to be referred to as floodplain, well, you, you might have some doubts about those hundreds of thousands of dollars that developers contributed to the various candidates and, and just wonder, could there have been a, some sort of quid pro quo? And I'm sure knowing our local politicos, as most of you do, your reaction is going to be, nah. Here's an interesting item we put aside uh, to return to later. It was uh, Dateline November 4th, 2006, from the San Francisco Chronicle. Article by Bob Ejelko. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor told the San Francisco audience Friday that judges are under political attack nationwide, and a ruling she endorsed four years ago is partly to blame. O'Connor spoke four days before voters in South Dakota considered the Jail for Judges initiative, which would create a citizen's grand jury that could authorize civil suits or criminal prosecutions against judges based on their rulings. We certainly can understand why Sandra Day O'Connor would be nervous about uh, an, an initiative like that. She was one of the five Supreme Court justices that stopped the vote recount in 2000 and gave us the George W. Bush presidency. If any judicial ruling could result in criminal prosecution, well, that, that would be pretty high on the list. But apparently uh, the, this backlash, uh, this direct citizen backlash against judges, uh, is largely a result of the Supreme Court's 2002 ruling that judicial candidates had a constitutional right to declare their views on legal or political issues. She was part of the court's 5-4 to four majority, that overturned a judicial ethics rule in Minnesota that banned such statements. Well, I don't know. It does seem that sometimes what goes around comes around. Well, we certainly enjoyed our talk last week with Michael Trachtman about 34 Supreme Court uh, decisions that, uh, Supreme Court cases that have affected our lives. We hope that we might uh, bring him back at some future date. And uh, final item of this segment, we're going to continue to follow this matter of Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez being in trouble over the issue of fired federal prosecutors. We sort of find it odd that Alberto Gonzalez has gotten in hot water over this when the fact that he's basically the guy that instructed the Bush administration that, you know, ignoring the Geneva Conventions, you know, would be okay is something that so far he hasn't gotten his wrist slapped over. And just two months ago... The big issue with Alberto Gonzalez was over uh, the increasing surveillance going on of American citizens at the behest of uh, the Pentagon, the CIA, and the Justice Department. The Week magazine had noted last January 19th that in a little-noticed signing statement, which uh, George Bush had attached to a Postal Service reform bill in December, as we've noted before, uh, Bush often uses such statements to set out his interpretation of how new laws affect presidential powers. In this particular case... Bush said federal authorities are allowed to open mail without a warrant when they deem that lives are in danger or to collect foreign intelligence. That same week, the Sacramento Bee noted that the Pentagon has been using little-known power to obtain banking and credit records of hundreds of Americans and others suspected of terrorism or espionage inside the United States. Personally, we have some doubts about uh, what it means to be suspected of terrorism, especially in the wake of the fact that uh, the revelations this week that in the ramp-up to the Republican convention in New York, the uh, NYPD was looking all over the nation at potential uh, terrorist groups, which apparently included peace activists. 
In fact, there was an article in Rolling Stone last November 11th from Robert Dreyfus titled The Pentagon's New Spies that described how the military has built a vast domestic intelligence network to fight terrorism, but is using it to track students, grandmothers, and others protesting the war in Iraq. You really should look up this article. We're only going to quote briefly from it as follows. In May 2005, a California group called the Raging Grannies ran afoul of military spies when it helped organize a peaceful Mother's Day demonstration to protest the war in Iraq. Unbeknownst to them, their action was brought to the attention of a new intelligence unit at the California National Guard, a program that went by the cumbersome title of Information Synchronization, Knowledge Management, and Intelligence Fusion. According to internal emails, the Guard forwarded information about the protest, quote, to our intel folks who continue to monitor, unquote. Asked why the California Guard was spying on the grannies, a spokesman suggested that terrorists might try to take advantage of the activists. Quote, who knows who could infiltrate that type of group and try to stir something up? Lieutenant Colonel Stan Zezotowski told reporters. After all, he said, we live in an age of terrorism, so who knows? <laughs> that was worth saying again. According to Lieutenant Colonel Zezotowski, who knows who could infiltrate that type of group and try to stir something up? Well, for the record, Lieutenant Colonel Zezotarsky, we do try to stir something up on this program, but we're going to keep a very keen eye peeled for anyone trying to infiltrate us. Anyway, uh, uh, final comment on, this, uh, on these attorney firings. Kyle Sampson, apparently a former Alberto Gonzalez chief of staff, coined the phrase, loyal bushies in a 2002-2006 email rating U.S. attorneys for retention or not. Apparently, whether you got retained or not had a lot to do with whether you were a loyal Bushy. Of course, as we reported on last week's program, uh, George Bush has said he's not going to let any of his aides uh, testify under oath before Congress. This does set up a potential constitutional crisis of sorts and did, did promote the following response from Jay Leno. Oh, I love when they say this is a constitutional crisis. Oh, please. We haven't used the Constitution in years. Said Conan O'Brien. After Congress subpoenaed presidential advisor Karl Rove, President Bush said he will allow Rove to answer questions, but not under oath. The president said, I am all for him talking as long as he doesn't have to tell the truth. And finally, John Oliver on The Daily Show commented, if Karl Rove knew one day he'd be forced to testify under oath about the advice he gave the president, he'd have to limit that advice to things that weren't shameful, illegal, or spectacularly boneheaded. Anyway, let's, let's take a short break. This might be a good time to use Pipeline by Dick Dale. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.
are back. We're not going to do any obituaries in today's show, although a number of people have uh, died that are worthy of some note. People like Calvert DeForest, one of the truly indelible figures of late-night television and a stalwart of both David Letterman's programs, where he was known as Larry Bud Melman. We'll talk about Larry Bud and some others on next week's program. We'll also, on next week's program, address this uh, startling item from the U.K., wherein a study in the distinguished scientific magazine The Lancet from Professor David Nutt of the University of Bristol and Professor Colin Blakemore, chief executive of the Medical Research Council. Uh, Those gentlemen and two other colleagues developed a new drug ranking system that would class socially acceptable tobacco and alcohol as more harmful than cannabis and considerably more dangerous than class A drugs in the UK, considered the most dangerous type, such as ecstasy and LSD. We're going to devote some time to this in the weeks to come. I'm not sure I agree with some of their new rankings either, but it certainly is uh, food for discussion. Stay tuned for that one. Well, I guess we're still in a Supreme Court mode, uh, uh, carrying over from last week. One looming battle that's going to go before the Supreme Court is going to be a result of the U.S. Appeals Court last week striking down a strict ban on owning firearms in Washington, D.C., This apparently was the first time a federal appeals court has voided a gun law on the basis of the Second Amendment. As The Economist magazine reported, the debate about the meaning of the Second Amendment is one of the fiercest in constitutional law. The Washington ordinance that was struck down was among the nation's most restrictive. Said Nelson Lund, a law professor at George Mason University in Virginia, it basically forbids everyone from having a gun. Personally, I have a very hard time supporting a a ban that's that restrictive. Here's a crime story from a couple months ago I thought was pretty bizarre. In Los Angeles, a man was cleared of murder when outtakes from the HBO comedy Curb Your Enthusiasm put him at Dodger Stadium when a murder occurred. He will now get $320,000 in a settlement from the city of Los Angeles. The L.A. City Council agreed to settle the police misconduct lawsuit filed by Juan Catalan, who spent five months in jail before footage from Curb Your Enthusiasm cemented his alibi. Apparently, Mr. Catalan's defense lawyer went through footage of crowd shots from the televised game but couldn't find his client. Then he learned that the HBO comedy starring former Seinfeld co-creator Larry David had been shooting at the ballpark that day. There he was in the outtakes, said Gary S. Castleman, the attorney handling Catalan's lawsuit. He's glad it's over. According to Castleman, someone else is now being prosecuted for the slaying in question. Catalan was reportedly not a fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm before his time in jail, said Castleman. He is now. Well, Here's another item I want to return to, a clipping I have from months ago. We're talking about judges and their decisions. Um... You know, a few months back, a federal judge vacated the conviction of Enron's late founder, Kenneth Lay, which wiped out a jury's verdict that he committed fraud and conspiracy in one of the biggest corporate scandals in U.S. history. According to an article uh, in the Associated Press, U.S. District Judge Sim Lake agreed with Kenneth Lay's lawyers that his death required that his conviction be erased and his indictment be dismissed. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I'm not sure why a man's death uh, requires either of those things. But they cited a 2004 ruling from the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that found that a defendant's death pending appeal extinguished 
his entire case because he hadn't had a full opportunity to challenge the conviction and the government shouldn't be able to punish a dead defendant or his estate. Oh, and Mr. Kenneth Lay's estate? Well, his lawyer said, on behalf of his, his estate, I'm really quite pleased with the ruling and glad this brings to a close the criminal proceedings against Mr. Lay. Oh, yes, and by the way, perhaps not coincidentally, the ruling thwarted the government's bid to seek $43.5 million prosecutors allege Lay took by participating in Enron's fraud. So that's $43.5 million you and me, the taxpayer, don't get back, which will remain in the Lay family Swiss bank accounts. Yeah, if that's justice, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a monkey's uncle. Speaking of rich guys behaving badly, the issue of the behavior of, uh, of the super rich and, and what CEOs are extracting, uh, strip mining out of their various corporations has been in the news quite a bit lately. It's been reported that the current crop of billionaires out there doesn't seem to be giving away a lot of their money. The question's been asked, uh, since billionaires can use only so many yachts, cars, and estates, why do they hoard? Michael Kinsley commented in Slate.com, It's simple. It's how they keep score. Most mega-capitalists are highly competitive, driven people who are measured, and measure themselves, by how much richer they are than everyone else. People like me, said investor Carl Icahn, are out to win. And winning is money. And if you, uh, if you share that sort of philosophy in life, you might want to consider taking up uh, Donald Trump on his various seminar offers. I got one in the mail here uh, fairly recently. I, I did not attend the event. But I did like the charming way that Donald Trump signed the letter that was sent out to all of the uh, prospective participants. <laughs> he signs it, Donald Trump, real estate billionaire. So we got to thinking... Why don't we see if we can get Donald Trump on the program? His people said he would. So joining us now from his home in Palm Beach, Florida, welcome to Radio Parallax, Donald Trump. Eric, have you achieved the financial success you deserve? Well, I'm not sure. I have, and this weekend I'm going to show you how to achieve financial success. Let me ask you, Doug, do you have the right mindset to be rich? Well, that's a good question. I do. Do you eat filet mignon every night? Well, not, no, I can't say that I do. No. I do. Do you drink Don Perignon out of the shoe of a supermodel? That doesn't even sound sanitary. I do. Have you been asked to be a celebrity judge for a contest called World's Greatest Asses? Mr. Trump? I have, and you can too. Well, you know, that's, that's not a major goal, frankly. For the incredible price, Doug, of $49.95, you and your listeners can hear my real estate wealth secrets. This is actually a non-commercial station. You want to do pledge drives all year? Don't be a chump. Listen to Trump. My can't miss tactics were known only to me till now. We really can't go there, actually. You'll learn my secrets, like how to buy low, sell high, how to build value, while always being a real classy guy. Classy. Always, my friend, always. When I pass gas, it's through soap, baby. But listen, millions have used my techniques to get rich. Why shouldn't you invest six hours at forty nine ninety five? It isn't the money. My seminars normally go for three forty nine ninety five. But look, this is our annual millionaire special. What what does that mean? Tony Robbins is coming. He's not just the tallest motivational speaker in America. He's got the whitest teeth and the crispest crease in his trousers of anyone you'll ever meet. Hmm. And Deep Back Chopra will be there, Doug. The man delivers so much satisfaction, Doug. Mick Jagger's just joined up with people. What? Listen to Deep Back and you can be happy too. And look, happy people make money, Doug. They do? They do. And as if that wasn't enough, you also get Robert Kiyosaki. That's, that's that rich dad, poor dad guy? That's the guy. His poor dad 
He was a swell guy, did cancer research, did charity work. I'm sure he was a one-man Red Cross. But listen, when he got old, he didn't have a pot to urinate in. Thank you for saying urinate. You want to wind up like that, Doug, huh? I don't think so. You want to be like his rich dad, Doug. That's what I'm thinking. I do? He's the kind of guy who sells iceboxes to Eskimos and gets them to pay the freight. When he dies, he'll have a coffin lid made of 14 carat platinum, Doug. Well, I'm not sure platinum comes in carrots. They'll have to roll him into the hole with a crane. $1,600 an ounce, too. Wouldn't you choose to go out like that? Well, I'm not really choosing to go any particular... I would. Listen, the late great May West once said, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. We have a seminar for an Indian tribe in New Mexico, Doug. They were living on a reservation in trailer parks. Trailer parks, I tell you. One weekend with Trump, and they started building casinos. Th th thanks casinos to you. Casinos out the wazoo. They listen to Trump. And now there's plenty of wampum coming in the old teepee, let me tell you. I see. Going from the white man to the red man, baby. The fire water is Don Perignon. Now, I say that's the real Montezuma's revenge for the new Mexican. Well, now, actually, Montezuma was Mexican. Yeah, the old Mexico, sure. I'm talking New Mexico. It's more like New York now, once they decided to follow my super wealth-building seminars. And it could work for you, too. Well, I'll think about it. Don't think. Do. Do. Move your fanny to the phone. Well, I'll try. Past tense of try. What is it? It's tried. I tried. Losers talk like that, Doug. You want to be a loser? Wind up without a pot to pee in? I think we have to go, Mr. Call Trump. now. Operators are standing by. Let me give the number. Uh, no. <laughs> that was Donald Trump, the alleged multimillionaire. We, we may have him back. And again, we may not. don't get everything it's true what it don't get i can't use i want money that about does it for today's program our thanks to jeff shaw of kdirt alice edgerton of weci-fm colonel charlie brown and of course donald trump this program was produced by edward mcmillan i'm douglas everett you've been listening to radio parallax on next week's program, we'll speak with James Israel, publisher and editor of the Comic Press News, about his 16th anniversary, bringing us some of America's best political cartoons. 